0: Jesus all life is worship and so all we can give is worship to a God who is worthy of it and so Lord would you give us the vision that our worship to you isn't put in a box where it's sound and lights and music and words to a song but that all of our life would be worship, that everything we do would be surrendered unto you as worship. And so whether it's pushing an EFT button or putting an offering in the basket or singing or seeking you, seeking your face in your word or fasting or praying, or whatever it might be, would it all be worship unto you? Would we surrender ourselves fully? It is all about you, Jesus. And a faithful, worshipful church said, amen. 10 a.m. I'm so glad you are here. Why don't you take your seats? And we're going to jump into this. Hey, we are wrapping up our very first mini series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And everyone said, ah. Oh. Don't worry, we're back straight after Vision on Sunday. We're still in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you have been tracking with us, you'll know um, b- the majority of our preaching schedule this year is going to be within this Gospel. And this first mini series, we have given the title Prepare the Way. Uh, And it's got two sides to that. The first is we're tracking in Mark chapter 1 the preparation of Jesus' ministry. Jesus putting on flesh. Jesus entering into human history and changing everything for us. And how the way was prepared for His coming. But at the same time, each one of us have hearts that need to be prepared by God for all that He's going to do in the midst of this year through this gospel. And so it's super exciting. In week one, James kicks us off looking at the message. The foundation, what is the start of the gospel being the good news of Jesus? And then last week, Vorno uh, took a look at the preparation of the messenger, Jesus himself, because in two moments, he was first baptized, and literally God the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit descended on him like a dove, empowered for the work that God was calling him to, and immediately he is led into the wilderness where he'll be tempted, And all of it is preparation for the start of Jesus' ministry. And so in this latter part of Mark chapter 1, we're at the kickoff of Jesus' ministry. We're actually getting to his very first words recorded in the gospel. And what he declares is that the kingdom of God is at hand. That the king is here, he's bringing a kingdom, and he's calling humanity into it. Would you pray with me? I'm excited. Lord, I am My prayer is this. I prayed it in the 8 a.m. and I'll pray it again. Lord, there is power in preaching, not because of the giftedness of a preacher or the words of man, but only because there is a message that is your supernatural message to us. And so Lord, would this not be my words? Would it be your words? Lord, with the power of preaching, as much as it can give us um, training and instruction, it can teach. Lord, I pray today that a preach would move our hearts, that it would align us with your heart, and that it would set us in action toward a kingdom, a kingdom where you are king, where you are in control. Lord, we're seeking you. It's all worship of you because you are worthy of it. And everyone said, amen. I had, a, I had an English teacher in high school called Mr. Watson. And Mr. Watson was a legend because he understood high school guys' minds. Uh, and I was uh, exactly the same. We always want minimum effort, maximum result. And in English, where you're hating the class, he had a system which was genius. I loved it. It was a system known as lazy pages. And so lazy pages would always be a thing that was discussed, and there was a little symbol that was created where we knew, if we saw the symbol, this was a lazy page moment. And so if there was ever a slide that went up or a handout that went out, or even specific pages within a textbook, if you saw the symbol or you heard lazy pages, you knew if you study these things, you'll be okay. It will be enough to get through the test and exam. Unfortunately, you can't audit grade 10, 11, and 12 English. I really wish you could, but you can't. And so somehow the exam is coming. But if you got the lazy pages, you'd probably be okay. And so I love the lazy pages. Got got the mark that I needed to get. Um, I really was diligent in high school. I probably cruised a little too much. But when we get to these verses in this latter part of Mark chapter 1, I really think these are the lazy verses that are gonna set up for us the next four chapters of what Mark is gonna reveal through Jesus and his work in the, next, in the next season. And so it's really important, if we get these verses, if we get what's going on here in the declaration of the kingdom and Jesus calling the disciples into that kingdom work, we will get a good understanding of where this whole thing is going. And so it starts in verse 14. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you follow with me? If not, don't worry, I've got the Sky Bible, you can follow along. It says this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who had become Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left the nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at this passage under these two big headings. Kingdom at hand and kingdom hands. Say that five times fast. Kingdom at hand and kingdom hands. The first one, kingdom at hand. I'll catch you up. We had mentioned last week we looked at Jesus being led into the wilderness to face the temptation of Satan. He is now prepared as in overcoming all that is. And he, for 40 days, has disappeared. In a time when the story was starting to gain some traction, he was beginning to get notoriety. Everyone had heard his baptism, which was a public moment where God the Father's heard from heaven saying, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's a crazy moment. And suddenly the story takes a turn. It's almost like the handbrake gets pulled because the main character disappears for 40 days. And he enters back into the scene. And while he's been gone, some setbacks have kicked in. John the Baptist is arrested in that time and we're gonna hear of his fate when we get to Mark chapter six. You don't wanna miss it. But this is a sidebar, this one's just for free. I just want you to know that sometimes when you are walking in the mission of God, The purpose of God. Sometimes when you're being prepared for the purpose of God, just like Jesus was, sometimes setbacks are going to happen. Sometimes John the Baptist gets arrested while you were gone facing Satan. It's really important we know that. But Jesus enters back into the scene. And it says in the, he comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now we know when we're coming into Mark's gospel, we've heard this over the last couple of weeks. It's the start of his ministry. I don't know if you know this, when you get to a story, the start of the story matters. It's really important. And as we know, the gospel of Mark, Mark's primary source for the gospel, his eyewitness account was the apostle Peter. And what they were seeking to do in putting this down on paper for us was to reveal and to portray who Jesus is. They wanted to ask the question and give us an answer outright, who is this Jesus? Jesus. And the start of the story, the start of Jesus' ministry is super important. Now, if you're going to tell the story of Jesus, I wonder why they started here. I wonder why the first act in Jesus' ministry is this. I wonder why the first words we will see in red in the Gospel of Mark is this. Because surely you would think you're going to start by portraying Jesus' power. So maybe you start with a moment where they're on a boat and a storm hits the boat and the storm is crazy and they think they're gonna die but Jesus stands up and he turns to the wind and the waves and he tells them to calm and they calm. They listen to his voice. They don't start there. Surely you would start with Jesus' compassion, his love for humanity. And so you tell the story of a moment where the religious leaders who were seeking to trip him up and entrap him bring a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and they throw throw her at his feet. And they say, according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned. What say you? And he thinks for a moment and replies and says, he who has sinned may cast the first stone. And one by one, they start to leave. He's writing in in the dirt. And he looks up and suddenly there's no one there. It's just the woman alone. And he says, where are those who condemn you? And she says, they have left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Surely you start with Jesus' power. Surely you start with Jesus' compassion. But they start here. They start with Jesus' words where he will declare and proclaim again what we saw in verse 1 and he does it, it's, it's important that we don't miss because it's important that before we see Jesus as a miracle worker, before we see Jesus as a wise teacher, before we see Jesus as the one who fulfills the law of Moses, we need to see him as this, a preacher of the gospel. The one who will tell the good news of his coming, the good news of him being the king who will bring the kingdom. That's where Jesus starts. He says, this is pivotal, this is foundational. All that other stuff will be built on top of this truth that there is good news and the good news is Jesus. I think the mistake we sometimes have is that we complicate Jesus. We complicate who he is. We complicate what he has said. We sometimes complicate his work. We sometimes complicate how we fit into the kingdom and his work that he calls us to. When we strip it all away, Jesus was very simple. He was about the good news. He was about the gospel. That was the foundation he stood on. If that was Jesus' heart and focus, how much more so should it be our heart and focus? He continues. He's going to give us some of the highlights of this kingdom that he will declare and the kingdom that is at hand. The first thing he wants us to know is that the kingdom is here and now. It says the time... Is fulfilled. These are the words of Jesus, the very first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled. He's saying the king is here, and with a king comes his kingdom. Because a king's rule and reign will be determined by his territory, his authority. He's saying, because I am here, now my kingdom and authority has come. It is here. And he's pointing back to a fulfillment of this coming. He's pointing back to truth in the Old Testament, promises and prophecies of a Messiah who would come out of Israel, who would come as a king to bring a kingdom. And he says, in my coming, the king is here and the kingdom has come. And it's interesting because he says the time is fulfilled. So he's not just pointing back. He wants us to know that the time is important. Because there's two Greek words that uh, are used in scripture for time. The one is chronos. Kronos is the general idea of time. You would use it kind of in, in terms of chronological time. But the second word that's used for time is the one that's used here. And that is the strategic or decisive use of time. Because Jesus also wants us to know the coming of the king, bringing the kingdom, isn't just fulfilling what was foretold. It's actually not done by accident. It wasn't like a comedy of errors that somehow ticked the boxes of what was being fulfilled. No, it was at the will and the sovereign power of God that this is now happening. It's strategic. It's decisive. It wasn't a matter of chance. It's here and now because God has called for it. He will then give a kingdom command. If there is a king and he's bringing a kingdom, the question is, well, how do we enter into the kingdom? And Jesus gives us the one-two punch answer. Repent and believe the gospel. We heard about this back in week one. That there is no salvation, there's no entry into the kingdom without repentance. And repentance is really important because simply what it means is a turning, a change of direction, turning 180 degrees away from going your own way and now going God's way. Away from you being the king of your heart to Jesus now being the king of your heart. See, and there's something we miss now, so many thousand years later that the first century audience didn't. They understood that when it came to a king and his rule and his authority, it was absolute. You didn't argue with the king. You didn't question the rule of the king. If he made a decree, it was followed completely. You didn't get to cherry pick what parts of his rule you liked and throw away others. You didn't get to take part of his word and discard others if it didn't sit right with you. His authority was absolute. And so when Jesus says, I come as a king and I bring in the kingdom, and the entry is repent and believe, what it is giving us is a picture of our responses. We surrender and we submit fully to his authority. Where it's now not about me, it's about him. It's now not about what I think, it's about what he thinks. It's not about what I value, it's about what he values. It's not about what I want to do, it's about what he's calling me to do. And we struggle with that because there's a part of us that still wants to hold a touch of that authority. And so when we come to God's word, and we want to submit to it, surrender to its authority, we need to realize there's going to be some part of this that is difficult. There's some part of this that is going to fight against submitting completely. I want you to know, I, don't, I, like, I, haven't, I, don't, I haven't got this 100% right. There are parts of God's word that I wish weren't there. There are whole pages in the Bible that I wish, oh Lord, did it have to, can we not take that one out? When you get to verses like, hey, in your anger do not sin, I wish that verse wasn't there. I wish I could cherry pick that one out, because that's difficult. It's not how it works if he is the king and he has authority. It means it's complete, it's full. We don't get to cherry pick what we like and chuck away what we don't. He gets to call the call shots. See, we sometimes get confused. We think now the repentance and the entry into the kingdom is just merely, hey, it's our ticket into heaven then. It's about the kingdom then. No, no, no. It's the kingdom now. So it's not just about us getting entry into the kingdom then. It's also about heaven getting into us now so that we can be transformed, shaped into the image of the king himself. See, I think sometimes we get confused when we talk about repentance and faith because we think it's it's just a matter of feeling. Somehow when we repent, all we need to do is have some sort of sorrow for our sin, feel bad for where we have gone wrong. Sin literally just means missing the mark. And because we miss the mark, because we're imperfect, we feel bad for that. And that's a good feeling, but can I tell you repentance isn't just a feeling word, it's an action word. It's a change of direction, it's a change of allegiance. It's a turning away from and a turning to. And so I'm gonna leave behind my own ways and I'm gonna go after God's ways. It's an action. That's why it says repent and believe. Because it understands it is a comprehensive full. There's no half measure here, it's only the full measure. Matthew Henry puts it this way. I can't do it better so I'm just gonna read it for you. It says, by repentance, We must lament and forsake our sins, and by faith we must receive the forgiveness of them. By repentance, we must give glory to our Creator, whom we have offended. By faith, we must give glory to our Redeemer, who came to save us from our sins. But this is important. Both these must go together. There's no half measure, there's full measure. The answer from Jesus is the one two punch of repent and believe. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. If he is king, if he's bringing the kingdom, his rule, his authority is over us. That's the first one. The second heading is kingdom hands. Now it shifts. Verse 16 says, passing, that's Jesus, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So if the king is here, and therefore his kingdom has come, and the king, kingdom is at hand, meaning it's, it's within reach, it's not distant, it's close, it's real, it's not some ethereal idea, it's not some concept, it's here, it's at hand. He is the king who will also now call people into the good work of his kingdom. See, because when we get confused and we think, hey, this is all just about changing our destination, it's about kingdom then, we forget that God's not in the business of just changing your destination then. He's also about changing your destiny now. So he has a greater purpose that he wants to call you into. He has a greater purpose for Simon, the brother of Andrew, who would become Peter. Because he says, I have something greater than you being Simon. I have, have a greater purpose that you will don't even know anything about yet. And this is what I'll call you into. He sees Simon and Andrew. And this was not their first meeting. We find out in John chapter 1 that they had met previously. Andrew actually had heard Jesus teach. He had seen him perform miracles. And he thinks, this is now the Messiah, the one who was foretold. And he runs back home to Simon, his brother, and he says, Hey, I have found the Messiah, you need to come see. And Simon has his first taste of Jesus, gets to hear him speak, gets to see him teach, gets to see the miracles that have been performed. He gets to understand that everyone's asking the question, is this the guy? And something begins to be awakened. And then at this meeting, everything changes because Jesus is seeking relationship with him. Jesus is seeking restoration with him, but Jesus is also seeking a change of destiny. And Jesus' call to him is, follow me. Jesus walks up the beach and seeing them, he says, follow me. Now, I just wanna myth bust the scene for us as I always love to do. I remember being in Sunday school, seeing this scene and coloring in the pictures. And sometimes the picture that is depicted in our mind or in Sunday school is a cute picture that is actually not what scripture actually looks like. Because I remember it being the cute picture of cute fishermen in their little boats and a cute Jesus walking on the beach saying, come follow me. The problem with it is that it makes no sense when you realize the f- cute fishermen we're talking about is professional, vocational fishermen commercial fishermen. These guys would have had calloused hands. They would have had skin that would have been weathered from the sun. They would have been big and strong because they literally built and carried wooden boats by hand into the Sea of Galilee. These were men that were were fishermen and they fished by net. Can I just tell you, that is the most hardcore way to fish, by hand, doing nets. If you fish with a rod, you're cheating. If you fish with a rod, Maybe this is a word from the Lord, it's not the Jesus way. Maybe you need to get a hold of some nets and do it by hand. Not like that stupid thing now that they do where it. it's like, you know, it's like finding Nebo when it comes with the bow. No, 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 by hand. So these are commercial fishermen. These are men that probably understood what it, listen, I'm sure the conversations they had out on the boat didn't go home to their wives because they probably weren't the holiest of conversations. And you want to tell me those fishermen That picture, when a guy comes walking up the beach and says, follow me, those guys drop everything and follow him, that doesn't play well when you're thinking of the cute Jesus picture. Because the Sunday school cute Jesus picture is the light skinned, blonde hair, (laughs) soft hands, never never done a day of work, in a white dress looking grand. That's the picture we have. I remember coloring it in, it's a lie. Because that's not the Jesus that came walking up the beach. I, just, I, I don't want to burst the bubble, but that's not who he was. A, he wasn't handsome. Scripture tells us he was very plain looking, hard looking. He would have been strong and tough. He would have had calloused hands just like them. He would have been big and strong and tough. He would have had dark skin because he knew what it meant to work hard. Yeah. He didn't look like me. Just want you to know, that's not the Jesus we serve. He looked far, far more like Jabs here in the front much closer to him than me. And it's interesting, when you start to think about that picture of Jesus, here's the question. As, as it has become popular, what, what was Jesus' occupation? Carpenter, right? That's the popular answer. The thing is, when you get to scripture, sometimes that comes a little bit unstuck. Let me tell you about it. Some people I know, mine's gonna be blown. Just get ready for it. Jesus might not be, have been a carpenter. Let me tell you why. Scripture tells us that Jesus was in the profession of his father, Joseph. And it says in Scripture that they were tectons. It's a Greek word. Now, that word tecton can be translated as carpenter. But it also can be translated as artisan or stonemason. Because tecton literally means shaper of, former of, to chisel out of. That's what tecton means. Now when we start to talk about what was Jesus' occupation, we run into not just a language problem, we run into a geographical problem. The northern shore of Galilee had many things in terms of its resources. One thing it did not have anything of was forestry. You would not find wood on the northern shore of Galilee. That's why so often in scripture, you will hear that they will build a a palace out of wood and the wood has to be brought in. The timber has to be taken from a place far, uh, far away to be brought in. Why? Because it didn't exist there. And so the profession of woodworking would not be present in the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. What was plentiful in that area was rock and granite. James said it in the ATM. He stole the moment from me, but now I get it back. Is it not interesting that Jesus is called the cornerstone? Because, in fact, he was a shaper of stone. And he had done that for decades. He's 30 now. Decades. He had learned his father's profession. And so when he comes walking up the beach dark-skinned and weathered with calloused hands, strong and tough, because he has literally been shaping rock his entire life. And he speaks to these burly, strong, big commercial fishermen and says, follow me. And they see that man standing on the beach. And they've heard the power and the authority by which he teaches. There's something different here. They follow. Why? Because Jesus is worth following. He's not the cute version we sometimes make up. He is the tough, calloused hand, Jesus, who understood what it meant to work hard. But it's also interesting that we don't miss the fact that Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men. He actually is calling them out of the purpose that they have now and says, Actually, I have a greater purpose for you. I'm going to make you fishers of men. But I don't want us to miss who he calls into that purpose. He doesn't call learned men, he calls common men. These were not guys that had theological theological degrees. These were not guys who had any ministry experience. These were guys in the context of society who had no status or power or intellectual prowess to stand on anything ministry related. And yet they were the guys that Jesus calls. See, what we forget sometimes is that in the first century for Jesus and his disciples, they grew up in the Jewish tradition. And they grew up in the Jewish education system, which looks very different to what we have now, because it was run by the rabbinical tradition and leadership of the day. And so what would happen for Jewish boys um, is for the first five years, from one to five, they would be educated in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law. And so every Jewish boy, didn't matter who you were, every Jewish boy at age five would be able to recite the Torah in Hebrew from memory. Every word. And at five years old, a test would be done, and if there was any that had greater potential, you would carry on in your in your education. Most didn't make the cut, and you'd be sent home to learn your father's trade. Can I tell you we're talking about fishermen? It's pretty sure we can almost guarantee they were cut at the first moment. They knew the Torah. They had done it till they were five. But then they went home and they learned how to fish from their dad. And you would carry on post five and up until you were 12 years old for those seven years, you would be trained in the entire Old Testament. And so a 12-year-old Jewish boy at that time would then be able to recite the entire Old Testament in Hebrew from memory, word for word. And at that moment, another cut would happen, another test would be done. And if you were good enough, you could then get on the track to become a rabbi. If not, you got sent home, you learned your dad's trade and you carried on. But if you were good enough, if you were a student that they believed could continue, what you would do at that time is a rabbi would actually approach you, select you and say, come and be my disciple. Come be my student. And for the next five to seven years, you would be under the tutelage. You would live, breathe everything with your rabbi. You would learn how to have debate in scripture. You would learn how to teach the scriptures. You would learn how to apply the scriptures. And then you could be set up to be a rabbi yourself. I want you not to miss that both for Jesus and the disciples he calls, they never follow this run. According to the system of man, they were all failures. According to every test, according to every call out, they fell short. Jesus went into the trade of his father. And at God's time, he's called in to start his ministry. Because there was nothing in the will of man that set this thing in motion. It was in the will of God. There was nothing in the testing of man that set this thing in motion. It was in the testing of God. And for these fishermen, the unlearned, the common man, they get called into a purpose by Jesus a purpose that was far beyond them, a purpose that society had said, you have no business doing this. And the encouragement to us should be this, that when God calls us into purpose, it is not about skill or experience or giftedness or intellectual prowess. It is about our heart. It is about will we follow the king to do the kingdom work. The only qualification the disciples had was the qualification of Jesus called me. Jesus chose these men not because of who they were or what they had to bring to the table. He chose them because he knew what he could do through them. And the truth is, as he calls them, he calls every single one of us now because he seeks to change your identity, to restore you, to bring you into a relationship with him now, but I hope you know it doesn't end there. He also wants to set you in mission in his kingdom. Every single one of us are going to be called to that purpose. Their response is immediate. They leave behind, they leave everything and follow him. And notice it says on both occasions, immediately they drop everything and follow Jesus. I think that's so important, because so often we can be like, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna obey, but I'm gonna do it then, I just need to get this sorted out first. Do you notice they drop their nets and immediately they go? When uh, when James and John are there, they don't say, hey, our dad's getting kinda old, we just need to sort out the boats, get them. No, they drop everything and leave. The hired servants, it's normally my job, I need to pay them at the end of the, no, drop everything and leave. I hope you know that delayed obedience is still disobedience. And so when Jesus calls and says, follow me, he means now. Because he's the king, this is his kingdom, it's here and now, and so when he calls us into a kingdom work, it's now. Not then, now. And the response is to leave everything behind. Because the the way up that they got right was that God's purpose outweighs any good purpose. I hope you see it, that Them being fishermen, that was a good purpose. They're providing for their family. They're doing a good work. And if that is what God has called them to and they do it to the day they die, they have served him faithfully. But in that good purpose, Jesus comes and says, I have a God purpose that I'm gonna call you to, would you follow me? See, sometimes the enemy of of God's best is good. Because it's an idea we have. Or it's a picture we've painted. It's not actually what God is calling. Now, I know, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying tomorrow you quit your job, let's do that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is let's seek and discern the, the voice of God. And when he says go, we go. When he says follow, we follow. When he says wait, we wait. It's obedience now. See, because they also realized that they were being called into his purpose it was outside of their ability, and so along with his purpose, they're gonna need his power. In the similar account in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus says, I'll make you become fishers of men, notice, I will make you become fishers of men, we get some extra details. Luke tells us that they were fishing all night and found nothing, no catch. Now, these are professional fishermen on their home lake. The Sea of Galilee, I know it sounds confusing because it's a sea, but it's not that big. You can stand on the shore and literally see the shore all the way around. And they had fished it since they were little. They knew every part of it. They knew how the weather affected it. They knew how the fish were were in it. They knew where they would gather. And yet sometimes as fishing goes, it wasn't their night. And they caught nothing. And it says in the morning, as they're cleaning their nets, getting ready for the next day, Jesus comes down with a crowd and he's wanting to teach the crowd and the crowd are pressing in and so he says to Simon, hey, would you just put me on your boat? Let's just row out a bit. I can, I can teach over the water. And Simon in that moment will row out and his job is to keep the, keep the boat straight so that Jesus can do his thing. And Simon in that moment, in a space where he is comfortable, gets a front row view to the greatest fisher of men ever. And I wonder if what had already been started within him, starting to awaken, now being put here, he has a picture of what actually he will do in the future. Jesus is preaching the gospel that the king is here and the kingdom has come. It's not too long before Simon will be called Peter and he will be called to do the same thing, to talk about the same guy. And in that moment, Jesus will finish teaching, and he asks Simon and says, hey, did you catch anything through the night? And he says, no, we caught nothing. And Jesus famously says, well, why don't you toss your nets on the other side of the boat? And you have to imagine that, that there was the moment where it's like, Jesus, I just watched you do what you do. But this is what I do. This is my lake. This is, this is In this area where I'm comfortable, where I have the expertise, where I have the skills, maybe, Maybe I know better. But he doesn't do that. Something's been awakened within him. And he obeys immediately. Takes the nest, tosses it to the other side. And hauls up a catch that quite literally is breaking the boat. They have to call out the boats to grab it and get it onto shore. It's the catch of a lifetime. It's the catch that will quite literally change the economic trajectory of your family for a long time. And in that moment, Simon breaks down. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Even in the area where he was comfortable, where it was his space, in the presence of the one who was on his boat, he understood, I fall short. And I think Jesus is doing it intentionally because he's saying, hey, I'm going to call you into my purpose, which means you need to know you need my power. And so I'm going to take you to the space where you're comfortable, where you think you have skills and knowledge and experience, and show you, you still fall short here. Because what I'm going to do is say, follow me into the uncomfortable. Follow me into the way that you are not prepared for yet. Because if you do, I can do something crazy. I'm gonna call you into my kingdom work. I wanna end with a story. I, I remember hearing about this famous painting Um, probably about 10 plus years ago. And it came up and it popped up on a podcast. I totally forgot it existed. Um, But it's a painting done by a a, a famous German uh, artist and it's called Checkmate. And for a long time, it it hung in the Louvre. It's now in a private collection. But back in 1880, there was a rich manor house owner in Virginia who owned a, a, a print of this. It's this painting called Checkmate where the artist has depicted a chess match happening between Satan and man. And as we look closer at the board, what you'll find is Satan will use the enemies to man that he has. And those are enemies of sin and shame. They are vices, they are sin. They are the things that bring shame upon man and he uses it against man. And right now it's checkmate. It's not looking good, man's on the ropes. His his defeat is guaranteed. And all man has to offer on his side of the board is his virtues, his good works, and they're falling short. And so there was a, in, a, in the 1880s, there was a famous grand chess master. He was the, the rock star of the chess world in the 1880s, and his name was Paul Morphy. And he gets invited to this manor house for a big um, dinner where there were dignitaries and politicians and sports people. There was every manner of elite society, he gets invited. And they're all looking at the art that's on display. And I'll let you guess which painting he was drawn to. This one. And for about 20 to 30 minutes, it said that he was just staring at the painting, analyzing it. And the owner of the manor house noticed and came over and told him, I, I knew you would notice this one. And he tells him the history of it. It's this German painter and he calls it checkmate. And it's this idea that Satan uh, and all that he has against humanity means that humanity's defeat is guaranteed. It's checkmate. And Paul Murphy says, no, you guys have missed it because I could win that game. And he says, no, you don't understand. That's not the point. The art is called a checkmate. This is, this, is, this is what it is, this is the story. And luckily there was three or four other chess grandmasters who were guests at this dinner. And they pull out a chessboard and they play, place it exactly as it is there in the painting. And for three or four grand chess masters, Paul Morphy takes the role of man. And every single time he gets a victory, he defeats them all. And everyone is shocked and amazed. And they said, how on earth did you do that? How on earth did you see that? And he said this famously, you all forgot what I now know, that the king has one more move. They forgot it wasn't checkmate, it was check. The king has one more move. And through the king's move, victory comes. Because there's no sin or shame that can defeat us, that can get in the way between us because he's the king, he has a kingdom and he's calling us to his kingdom work. Why don't you stand with me as the band joins me on stage. I don't know what might be in the way right now. I'm just feeling that actually there's a lot of people in the room. There are obstacles in the way. There are obstacles in the way to you being in relationship, being restored with Jesus. There are obstacles in the way. There are enemies to you actually stepping out in kingdom purpose, to being the hands and feet of Jesus on earth right now. I hope you know that there is hope because the king made a move. And he made a move to restore you, to change your identity, to call you into great purpose. He has the final say. He had the very first say. It is all about him. Jesus, it's it's our heart right now that you would again just drop the truth down so deep that you have a love for us that no enemy can stand against, that you have pursued us, that there is no obstacle that could get in the way of you grabbing a hold of our hearts, changing them and bringing us into your kingdom. There is a king who has a kingdom and its authority knows no end. Its authority knows no equal, and it's the kingdom of Jesus. And so, Lord, would we be kingdom people? Would you grab a hold of us? Would you make us kingdom people so that when your call of follow me comes, immediately we would follow? Would nothing get in the way? Would nothing delay? It is all about you. And so as we sing again that you are the king of our heart, I pray that that would be a truth that's not just words on a screen, but it is the reality that we tangibly feel and walk in right now. That we are not king. That we have no authority. We have handed it over. We've surrendered it to you. Because you are the only king who is worthy of it. Lord, we seek you. We glorify you. We lift you up. Let's sing.